Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Like this one, which came in from friend of the show, Jeffrey from Massachusetts. Quote, Love the podcast! Simple and to the point. Works for me. And by the way, I have to give a further shout out to Jeffrey because he has also emailed rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com several times during this hiatus to ask when the podcast was coming back. So thank you very much, Jeffrey, for being such a loyal fan. Really appreciate it. And there was also one more five-star review which came in while we were gone, this one being from Nick G. Quote, Bring it back! HHP, it's been nine months, man. We're missing the show. Tell the baby it's time to get back to work. Paternity leave is only kind of a real thing. End quote. I'll admit, I did laugh at that last part, actually. But believe me, though, Nick, I wish I was on paternity leave this entire time. I actually only had about a month of it. And then my wife and I were back working full-time from home while also trying to take care of my son, D'Lo Gangrel Hugepex, throughout the day as well. Needless to say, it was challenging, but obviously many other parents go through the same thing too. We're not really special there. But now, the little guy is in daycare, so that frees up some more hours during the day where I can do things like avoid work so I can write 20 pages worth of notes for an episode of Monday Night Raw from 1999, hypothetically. So that's good. But anyway, thank you very much for the kind words, Nick G. And as requested, the Raw Attitude Podcast is indeed back. And on that note, well... It's been quite a while since we've last spoken to each other, hasn't it? The last time I put out an episode was July 2nd of 2020, a mere six weeks after the birth of my son. And for those of you who are going back and binging this episode at a later date, this one is going up in February of 2022, which is a little more than a year and a half after the last episode. So yes, there's been a bit of a layoff. In case you need a reminder, Nick touched on it in his review, but the reason for the long delay is because I wanted to focus on being a new father, and on top of that, it takes me roughly 30 hours just to churn out a single episode of this podcast, so, well, needless to say, it's tough to allot that much time with a little guy at home. However, with that being said, in case you missed it, during this long layoff, I did manage to create a wrestling trivia game show, which I cleverly called the Wrestling Trivia Challenge. The basic concept is that two contestants go head-to-head, -head, and whichever one wins gets to come back for the next episode to defend his title. I put it up on YouTube instead of as a podcast, so if you ever want to see what I look like in real life, be sure to click the link in the description for this episode. Adam and Sal from The Rundown squared off in the first episode, Carl Bryan from Shipwrecked and Comatose was the challenger for the second episode, and Tom from the Stranger Rings podcast was the challenger for the third episode. So how did it all play out? Be sure to go watch on YouTube, because I had fun doing it, and I think you'll enjoy it too if you like wrestling trivia and or game shows. Also, I do have to give a quick apology to a gentleman named Greg Cherry, because just weeks before I created my trivia show, he also created a YouTube show called 
the Wrestling Trivia Challenge. So obviously our shows are structured differently, but still, I gave it the same title as his, and in fairness, he did get in there first, so my apologies to Greg there. And one of the big stories which happened during this podcast hiatus was that NBC acquired the rights to stream the content from the WWE Network on their service called Peacock for the tidy sum of $1 billion. I will say, though, so far, I think NBC has done a pretty good job of getting WWE's content onto Peacock. And granted, some shows went up sooner than others. For example, every episode of Monday Night Raw was pretty much up within a month, while older episodes of SmackDown took several months. And also, as a side note, why the fuck was Over the Edge 99 one of the first pay-per-views that was available? That decision baffled me, but whatever. But anyway, I will go on record as saying that so far, when it comes to Peacock, I'm on board. Or, as our generation's greatest songwriter, Katy Perry, puts it, I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock, cock, you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock. I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock, cock, you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock. Ah, yes. Somehow, that's a real song, folks. I will say, though, NBC, can you change that whole thing where every pay-per-view is grouped by quote-unquote season? For example, the 1999 Royal Rumble was the 12th annual Royal Rumble pay-per-view, so it's listed as season 12 on Peacock, but literally no one has ever said, my favorite Royal Rumble? I'd have to go with season 12. The concept of seasons works for television shows, not really for pay-per-views, so please change that shit, NBC. Also, just one further complaint here. Could you maybe put some better fucking movies on Peacock? Because, good lord, that is an abysmal selection you have there. For a while, The Shining Light was the Godfather trilogy, but now even that's gone from Peacock. How do you get rid of The Godfather? So, I don't know. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that the WWE library is literally the only reason why anyone should have Peacock. Feel free to skip the rest. So anyway, I think that just about covers things. So with that being said, let's get on with the show. But before we begin the Raw recap, well shit, you probably need a refresher on where we last left off, don't you? In case you need a reminder, in the last episode of this podcast, Sal from The Rundown joined me to recap King of the Ring 99 and the following night's episode of Raw. A quick synopsis. Billy Gunn is your new King of the Ring. Stone Cold Steve Austin lost a ladder match to the McMahons, so Vince and Shane regained full control of the WWF. But on the next night's Raw, Stone Cold revealed that prior to losing his share of the company, he booked a title match on Raw himself versus WWF champion and leader of the corporate ministry, The Undertaker. And of course, Stone Cold then proceeded to beat Taker for the belt on free TV in what is still the most watched wrestling match in the history of cable television at just under 11 million viewers. However, Austin didn't have much time to celebrate his title win because The Undertaker immediately smacked him in the face with the belt, bloodying Stone Cold in the process. Taker then proceeded to punch Austin's open forehead wound in an attempt to draw even more blood, and that is how we went off the air. Feel caught up yet? I certainly hope so, because it's time to jump into this episode of Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, July 5th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Crown Coliseum in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include four episodes of Raw, five episodes of SmackDown, the 2011 Tribute to the Troops, and interestingly, ten episodes of TNA, which were taped in 2011 and 2014. By the way, one of those episodes of Raw that I mentioned was the November 24th, 1997 episode, which is noteworthy because the New Age Outlaws defeated the Legion of Doom to win the WWF Tag Team titles for the very first time. 
So keep that in mind, in this very arena, a legendary duo won their first of many tag team titles. Spoiler alert, you may want to remember that little tidbit for later on in the show. So we open with clips from last week's aforementioned WWF title match between The Undertaker and Stone Cold, with Austin winning the belt and Taker bloodying him up afterward. But then we get a clip from the previous night's episode of Sunday Night Heat where The Undertaker issued a challenge. He wants a rematch for the title at Fully Loaded in three weeks, and he wants it to be a First Blood match. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... I poop 24-7. Mr. Ass, I want a piece of your fame, asser. Shamrock for CEO. Help wanted, puppies needed, all shapes and sizes, none too small. The charmingly simple WCW is crap. Muff divers with an arrow pointing downward. And finally, show me your rattlesnake. And on a related note, in a separate area of the arena, show me your lethal weapon. What are the odds of there being two signs with a similar dick joke on both of them? Only in the Attitude Era, folks. And we officially kick things off with your brand new WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin heading to the ring to his usual monstrous pop. So what does Austin have to say about The Undertaker's challenge for a first blood match at Fully Loaded? Take a listen, because a familiar foe interrupts, and he has something very interesting to say. If you saw Stone Cold beat The Undertaker's ass last week, give me a hell yeah! It wasn't a pretty sight, but I damn sure got the job done. On a personal note, I would like to say to Vince McMahon... You say how you spent the last four months of your life with a master plan trying to take this damn belt away from Stone Cold Steve Austin. And on one Monday night, Stone Cold Steve Austin crumpled up those plans and shoved them right up your ass. As far as The Undertaker goes... Coming out here and laying down all these challenges and giving Stone Cold Steve Austin deadlines. Son, I ain't a hard man to find. As far as your little first blood match goes, I do accept at fully loaded. Good. Great. And I tell you this, the last time I was in a first blood match against Kane, it was you that came down busted me wide open and cost me the World Wrestling Federation Championship. So, I will say to you, paybacks are a bitch, and that's all I got to say about that. Man, he's jacked tonight. Oh, no. That's not all you've got to say about that. No. What? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, no. something to say about that. You hear this crowd chanting at Mr. McMahon. See Austin? Hold it. I'll tell you right now, you're going to have to talk a hell of a lot louder than that because my hearing ain't so good and you got 15,000 people calling you an ass. come to the conclusion that the World Wrestling Federation, quite frankly, is just not big enough for the both of us. Wow. Austin, 
Somebody's got to go and go for good. And that somebody is either you or me. What? What's going on here? You see, Austin, I've got a challenge for you. And that challenge is this. So confident am I that The Undertaker's going to leave you a bloody mess in the ring at Fully Loaded and walk from the ring as the WWF champion that I'm willing to put in writing. Yeah, chant for him all you want. I'm willing to put in writing, Austin. And listen up, I don't even care if your attorneys draw up the contract. I'm willing to put in writing that I will never, ever again, directly or indirectly, interfere, compromise, or in any way have anything at all to do with you here in the World Wrestling Federation ever again. Are you interested? And the stakes are getting higher here. You're damn right. Then all you've got to do is agree. And by the way, I won't accept your word for it any more than you would accept mine. I want it in writing. All you've got to do, Austin, is agree that if, or should I say, when the Undertaker defeats you, that you will not ask for a rematch. As a matter of fact, that you will never again in your professional career ever even attempt to become the WWF champion again. Never. My God, that's a... I'm willing, Austin. I'm willing to take a risk. And why am I willing to take this kind of risk? Quite frankly... I don't think it's that much of a risk, but I'll tell you why, because if you agree, Austin, the reason is this, the thought of you, oh, please, trying to make a point, and this is a huge deal that's going down right before our very eyes here, oh, the stakes are getting higher and higher, these people won't shut up. The thought of you representing the World Wrestling Federation as the WWF champion makes me, just makes me rich with emotional trauma. The thought of you, Austin, with that WWF title right in the ring, the sight of it makes me physically ill, makes me want to vomit. That's why I'm willing to take that risk. But I'll tell you this. If you decide to accept the challenge, Austin, if you decide to accept, then think about it. This one way or another will be the end of an era. And Austin, if you are somehow victorious, neither you nor either any of these people will ever see Vince McMahon again. What? Oh God, that is, that's our shadow. It's unthinkable. Think about it. So are you saying that I can get my own attorneys to draw off the paperwork so I ain't got to worry about trusting your sorry ass? Is that correct? That's correct. If you don't want to see Vince McMahon no more, give me a hell yeah. Vince, I'll accept your little challenge. But it won't be the end of an era. It'll just be the end of you. And that's the bottom line. Pastel Cole said so.
So there you have it. Stone Cold does indeed accept The Undertaker's challenge for a first blood match at Fully Loaded in three weeks. But as you heard there, he was quickly interrupted by Vince McMahon. And the chairman then proceeds to lay out an additional stipulation to the first blood match. If The Undertaker wins back the championship, Stone Cold will not receive a rematch. And on top of that, he will never again be allowed to challenge for the WWF title. But if Austin wins, Vince McMahon will never be seen on WWF television again. And clearly, one of those stipulations will definitely be honored. Certainly, there is no possible way to go back on a promise like that. Nope, not at all. Stone Cold will definitely never again have a WWF title match, or Vince McMahon will never again be seen on television. You can take that to the bank, folks, 100%. I will say, though, back in 1999, this seems like it would have been a pretty nice hook to get you to order a show in July, a month when the WWF never really has a strong pay-per-view. The Austin-McMahon rivalry is going to come to a close one way or the other after roughly a year and a half of some of the best television the company has ever produced. It's pretty compelling, and in fairness, without spoiling too much, Fully Loaded pretty much does mark the end of Austin versus McMahon in the Attitude Era, so it does actually live up to that end of the bargain. Whether or not the match stipulations end up being honored is a whole other topic. But yes, folks, in three weeks at fucking Fully Loaded 99 of all shows, arguably the greatest rivalry in WWF slash WWE history will end once and for all. Or at least until the invasion, anyway. So how does it all play out? You'll just have to stay tuned. And once that segment ends, we cut to Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler at the commentary desk, where they inform us that we will have not one, not two, but... Three title matches on Raw tonight, and if that wasn't enough, we also get The Rock versus Triple H inside of a steel cage. I mean, shit, speaking of pay-per-views, this show sounds like it's pay-per-view caliber on its own, but I suppose we'll see if it lives up to the hype. And so, after our first commercial break of the evening, we go backstage where Michael Cole has caught up with The Rock, and, well, let's take a listen to what he has to say about his steel cage match with Triple H tonight. Rock tonight, no outside interference. You're going to be locked inside a steel cage with Triple H. You say Triple H like the Rock is supposed to be impressed all of a sudden. Michael Cole, know your role and shut your mouth. Triple H, well, before we do that, would you mind wearing the Rock's brand new SmackDown Hotel t-shirt? You might want to put it on, will you? Shut up, Jabroni. Here, right, just like that. SmackDown Hotel. Don't touch it, Jabroni, and keep the microphone right here. Triple H, don't touch it. Triple H, you come out and you talk about your dreams and your aspirations about becoming the WWF champion. Well, The Rock says before he ever lets that happen, he'll lay the smackdown on your candy ass and ten others who look just like you. What you're failing to realize, Triple H, is that you are dealing with the most, keep your head still, the most electrifying man in sports entertainment. The Rock is genetically electrifying. He emits electricity. The Rock is electrifying solely on genetic makeup, emitting electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, including leap year. And badass, keep your head still, Jabroni. And badass Billy Gunn, The Rock hasn't forgotten about you either. You're a nothing, a nobody, a peon to The Rock. So Triple H tonight in front of the thousands and thousands of fans live and the millions and millions of The Rock's fans watching live. The Rock is going to go out there and do what he does best. And let's lay the smackdown on your Rudy Pooh. If you smell what The Rock is 
I have to say, I think The Rock may be onto something here. The best way to advertise your new t-shirt may be to do exactly what he does here. Put it over Michael Cole's head so we don't have to look at his goofy-ass goatee. Pretty smart thinking. And by the way, in case you're wondering, the shirt in question says, I got checked into the SmackDown Hotel on the front, and on the back it says, on the corner of Know Your Roll Boulevard and Jabroni Drive. But honestly, though, I don't really remember this particular shirt, so I'm guessing it wasn't a big seller. But by all means, if you actually had this t-shirt, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at RawAttitudePod. And so we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is one of the three title matches on tonight's card. WWF Tag Team Champions, the Acolytes, versus Challengers, the Hardy Boys, who are accompanied by their manager, Michael P.S. Hayes. And as a reminder, we're in Fayetteville, North Carolina tonight, which is a mere 40-minute drive from the Hardys' hometown of Cameron, North Carolina. However, before the match starts, I need to provide a bit of a backstory. Last night on Heat, X-Pac and Kane cleanly defeated the Hardys in a three-minute match, which is certainly odd considering that the Hardys are challenging for the fucking titles tonight, and yet they jobbed completely cleanly the night before. Okay then. But regardless, after the Hardys lost, because the Acolytes knew they'd be defending the belts against them on Raw, Bradshaw and Farouk headed down to the ring and started beating up Matt and Jeff. Unfortunately for the Acolytes, though, X-Pac and Kane came to the rescue, and in a very impressive-looking spot, Kane then tombstone Bradshaw right onto the steel stairs. And that leads us back to tonight, because before the Acolytes head through the curtain, an EMT walks up to Bradshaw and tells him that he's not medically cleared to wrestle tonight, presumably because that tombstone from Kane gave him a concussion. To which Bradshaw responds by punching the EMT in the face and knocking him out. And so, our WWF Tag Team title match will indeed go on as scheduled, with one of the competitors apparently wrestling with a brain injury. It was a different time, folks. And by the way, I mentioned Michael Cole's goofy-ass goatee a little while ago, but Jesus Christ, Michael P.S. Hayes definitely has him beat here in the goatee department. 1999 was apparently a pretty rough year for facial hair in wrestling. I feel like we all probably should have known better. But as for the match, we start out hot as Matt Hardy dives over the top rope and attempts a crossbody, but Farouk and Bradshaw catch him in midair, so Jeff Hardy gets a running start and hits a somersault plancha over the top rope and onto both acolytes, and Jeff even lands on his feet for good measure. Hell of a way to open a match, that's for sure. And I know nowadays if you watch pro wrestling, you'll see a spot like this in pretty much every single match, and I say this as someone who's a huge fan of AEW, But back in 1999, the fans popped big for it, and the Hardys got over because no one else was doing crazy stuff like this at the time in the WWF. But anyway, continuing on, we get another impressive spot, this time back in the ring. With Farouk down on the canvas, Matt and Jeff went to the top turnbuckles on opposite sides of the ring, and Matt then hit a top rope leg drop to Farouk's face, while Jeff hit a top rope splash. And I have to say, the timing here was really great because they both landed on Farouk at almost the exact same time. However, only a two count. And from there, we get a few more minutes of action until we head to the finish. So how does it end? Well, let's take a listen. Michael Hayes up on the apron. Michael Hayes and Farouk now getting tangled up on the outside. Hey, one thing, there was nothing wrong with that big clothesline. Oh, Bradshaw from Bradshaw. Nothing wrong with this either. Oh, look out!
so what you heard there was Michael P.S. Hayes jumping up on the ring apron, which caused Farouk to just say, eh, fuck it, and he went down to the floor to brawl with Hayes. In the ensuing chaos, however, Jeff Hardy managed to grab Hayes' cane, and he smacked Bradshaw in his concussed head with it, behind referee Jimmy Corderas' back. From there, a perched-on-the-second-rope Matt Hardy then grabbed Bradshaw by the neck and nailed him with a tornado DDT. Matt made the cover, Corderas made the count, and ladies and gentlemen, your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions are the Hardy Boys. And by the way, because Bradshaw is Bradshaw, he still had to kick out immediately after the three count, just for good measure, even though he had the built-in concussion excuse to justify getting pinned. What a dick. But yes, for those scoring at home, these are indeed the first of many titles won by the Hardy Boys in the WWF slash WWE. And I just want to point out how improbable this was at the time, because remember, the Hardys made their debuts with the company at the same television tapings in May of 1994, with Matt losing to Nikolai Volkov and Jeff losing to Razor Ramon while wrestling under the name of Keith Davis for some reason. And infamously, you may also remember the Hardys acted as the doormen at King of the Ring 95, which is a fun little bit of history. They spent most of the next few years on the independent scene before returning to the WWF full-time in the fall of 1998, but I need to point out, they were pretty much total jobbers up to this point, mainly appearing on Sunday Night Heat and Shotgun Saturday Night. And yet, for some reason, on the May 17th episode of Raw, they got to have a seven-minute match against the Brood, and their high-flying offense completely stole the show. Fast forward just six weeks later, and they're the WWF Tag Team Champions. Needless to say, when they were told they were going to be getting some airtime on Raw, they certainly made the most of it. So congratulations to Matt and Jeff for winning their first titles in 1999, and props to both of them in the present day as well, because as I type this, both of them were still wrestling up until recently, with Matt still appearing in AEW, while Jeff was, unfortunately, recently let go from WWE in December of 2021 due to his refusal to go to rehab, but obviously, we all hope everything works out for him there. And after a commercial break, we go backstage where Terry Taylor is with the Hardys and Michael Hayes. And, well, things go in a strange direction. What has to be one of the greatest upsets in WWF history? Congratulations, Hardy boys and Michael Hayes. Hey, don't talk to me. It's third time. Talk to the channel. Matt Hardy? You know, for my entire life, I've always dreamt about what it would feel like to be the WWF Tag Team Champions. How do you know? I knew it would be overwhelming, but the Come on, kid, spit it out. With the bell in my hand. Technical problem. There are no words. There aren't words. What's wrong? He's fish-talking. He's going to have thick. I got to run him. Look at that. Nice straight line up the back here. I think my legs are looking kind of... Did you shave your legs? Yeah, I don't want hair sticking through, man. Look at yours. Come on. And, and you got glitter all over you. I think it looks kind of good, man. And the cleavage, I mean, it just... Draws. Draws. Do you like this? Well, yeah, it feels kind of good, but what kind of sex? So let it be known that after the Hardys won the tag team titles for the very first time, their post-match celebratory promo was interrupted by GTV. And in case you were wondering what was going on in that clip, Draws and Prince Albert were shown backstage in their locker room dressed as women. Why? Because last night on Heat, Draws and Albert faced the Godfather and Val Venus, with the stipulation being that they would have to become the Godfather's hoes if they lost, and, well, they lost. So tonight, they must dress up as women, apparently. And I would give the WWF some credit for being progressive and ahead of the times here, since Draws flat out says that he actually enjoys dressing as a woman because it makes him feel sexy, but something tells me this angle will ultimately end up being, shall we say, less than dignified. 
Call me crazy. But speaking of which, from there we go back into the arena for our next match, Gangrel versus The Godfather, who is accompanied by two hoes who are not Draws and Albert. And on that note, I can't help but notice that one of The Godfather's ladies looks a tad familiar. And in case you couldn't tell from the giant tattoo on her right shoulder, one of the hoes is indeed Amy Dumas, a.k.a. the future Lita. And funny enough, at this point in time, she had actually just started dating Matt Hardy, so perhaps Matt is the one who recommended her for this gig. I don't know, that's just speculation there. I don't have any inside knowledge, but it seems like a reasonable conclusion. Also, prior to tonight, she had been in ECW under the names Miss Congeniality and Angelica as the on-screen girlfriend of Danny Doring, and she actually does return to ECW after tonight. This isn't really the start of her WWF career just yet. We won't see her again until about seven months from now, in February of 2000, but this is, I'm sure, a fun little footnote in her career. So anyway, Godfather gets on the mic and does his pimpinate easy routine, and he then asks for Val Venus to come out and join him as well. From there, Godfather then asks his two newest hoes to come to the ring, and yes, we do indeed get a very happy draws and a very miserable Prince Albert wearing makeup, wigs, and women's dresses. But props to Albert, though, for walking in heels down that angled steel ramp. That's pretty impressive. But while Draws and Albert are walking to the ring, Gangrel takes that opportunity to jump the Godfather from behind, and so our match is underway. And as you might expect, it doesn't last for very long, but I will say that the finish actually took me by surprise. Gangrel went for an elbow drop on Godfather, but he moved out of the way, causing Gangrel to fall to the mat. Godfather then bounced off the ropes, hit Gangrel with a leg drop, and... scored the three count? Yes, you heard that correctly. The Godfather just beat Gangrel cleanly with a standard garden variety leg drop in literally 80 seconds. As if you needed a reminder of how far Gangrel has fallen at this point. And then, as soon as the match ended, Draws and Albert proceeded to jump Val Venus and beat the crap out of him on the arena floor. And meanwhile, back in the ring, Gangrel then nailed Godfather with an Impaler DDT. And then, he rolled out to the floor and joined Draws and Albert in their beatdown of Val Venus. However, while that was going on, Edge and Christian emerged from backstage, and they then proceeded to confront Gangrel about his actions and pull him away from the scene. So apparently, we have a bit of dissension going on within the brood, because clearly this segment wasn't overbooked already enough as it is. Again, just to recap this single five-minute section of the show, Draws and Albert are on GTV dressed as women, the Godfather comes out with two hoes, one of whom is the future Lita, then Val Venus comes out, then Draws and Albert come out, Godfather beats Gangrel in less than a minute and a half, Draws and Albert beat up Val, Gangrel joins in on the beating, and then Edge and Christian bicker with Gangrel. I feel like we just packed about three weeks worth of story into a single segment, but hey, that's Vince Russo booking for you folks. So from there, we go backstage where Stephanie McMahon is talking to Test, and speaking of GTV, in case you need a reminder, last week on Raw, GTV caught Stephanie and Test leaving a hotel together, which drew the ire of Shane McMahon and the Mean Street Posse. So we catch up with Test and Stephanie tonight, and we're not totally sure what they're talking about, but our Canadian hero tells Stephanie, quote, Listen, don't worry about a thing. So that was nice. And after a commercial break, we may have our answer as to what they were discussing, because we segue into our next match, Test versus the newest member of the Mean Street Posse, Joey Abs, a.k.a. the one member of the group who is an actual trained wrestler in real life. And we actually get off to a hot start, because with Test in the ring, Joey Abs started walking down the aisle, where he turned toward the Titantron to admire his entrance video, but when he turned back around, Test nailed him with a spear onto the ramp. 
So they head back into the ring, and the match officially begins. And I have to note a bit of an unintentionally amusing moment, as Jerry Lawler says that Stephanie should be dating Joey Abs instead of Test, because Joey Abs is also from Greenwich. To which I say, don't worry, King, she'll end up marrying someone from Greenwich, all right. Well, as is kayfabe hometown, anyway. And I also couldn't help but think of how I felt bad for Joey Abs. I mean, his name is Joey Abs, so presumably he has some quality abdominal muscles, but we can't see them because he has to wrestle in a blue sweater vest. That'd be like calling yourself the god of quads while wearing long tights instead of trunks. It just wouldn't make sense, but I digress. So anyway, after about two minutes of in-ring action, Shane McMahon shows up at the top of the ramp, grabbing Stephanie by her shirt so she can't get away. This distracts Test, which allows the other members of the Mean Street Posse to run into the ring, where they jump him from behind, right in front of referee Teddy Long, who calls for the bell. Your winner, via disqualification, is Test. However, Test certainly doesn't feel like a winner, as Rodney and Pete Gass proceed to hold back his arms, while Joey Abs punches him repeatedly in the face. The Mean Street Posse continue the beating, as Shane taunts Stephanie by yelling, You see what happens? Eventually, the posse leaves, and Shane releases his sister, who then proceeds to run into the ring to check on her boyfriend. Needless to say, I don't think Shane wants his sister to date a wrestler. And obviously, Stephanie McMahon will never end up with a... Ah, never mind. And on a related note, after a commercial break, we go to the parking lot where Stephanie's future husband, Triple H, is with China. And China is loudly complaining to three police officers, and we know they're the real deal because they're wearing t-shirts that say, Police. You know, as cops do. But we then see what China is complaining about. Her car has DX spray-painted on the hood and Break It Down spray-painted on the driver's side. She tells the t-shirt-wearing cops that Road Dog and X-Pac are the ones who did it, which would certainly seem to be the obvious explanation, but, well, I guess we'll see how that transpires. And from there, we head back into the arena, where D'Lo Brown is already in the ring, and he has a microphone. D'Lo says that reigning hardcore champion Al Snow has challenged him to a match, and he proceeds to talk some trash about Al, but unfortunately, while he's doing that, Al Snow sneaks into the ring behind him, and when D'Lo turns around, Al levels him in the head with a cookie sheet. And so, Brown versus Snow for the hardcore title is underway, and by the way, whatever you do, don't eat the brown snow. And just seconds after the bell rings, as is the custom for these hardcore matches, Al and D'Lo roll out of the ring and start brawling toward the crowd. And I had to get a chuckle because while they're fighting each other, Jim Ross refers to them as, quote, two yahoos, which is the exact same terminology he had been using recently in the present day in AEW to refer to Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows. Good old JR is nothing if not consistent. And from there, we get a brief brawl on an escalator, followed by what I thought was the highlight of the match. They head over toward a payphone where D'Lo starts strangling Al with the cord, and he then says to him, quote, next time use 1-800-COLLECT. Because, as you may remember, D'Lo did a 1-800-collect commercial with Steve Austin around this time, so props to D'Lo for being a company guy. Continuing on, D'Lo Irish whips Al through a gimmick table which is stood up against a wall, and Al Snow goes crashing through it. But then, well, let's pick up things from there. Snow hammering a 
by D'Lo now with a little uh, inadvertent assist. I guarantee you, Al Snow is not in business with Midian. Midian's Al- issue is with D'Lo. Where's Al Snow gone now? Is he after Midian? What's that? What's that machine? Or that's a, some kind of... What's that? Oh, Al, Al Snow is some kind of lift. So it looked like D'Lo had the match in hand, but then, of all people, your reigning WWF European champion, Midian, popped up from behind a curtain, and he threw a standing table into D'Lo's face. Al Snow then took that opportunity to place D'Lo on top of another table, but Al then disappears for a moment, and then we get the amusing visual of Al Snow popping up from behind a curtain because he's standing on a cherry picker. He jumps off and hits a splash onto D'Lo, sending him through a table. Referee Mike Kyoto makes the count, and that's good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and still WWF Hardcore Champion, Al Snow. A hardcore match between Al Snow and D'Lo Brown, which features a run-in by Midian. What could possibly be more Attitude Era than that, I ask you? And as a quick side note, even looking back on this now, I'm still in disbelief that Midian, of all people, actually held a singles title during the Attitude Era. I know, I know, it's only the European title, but honestly, even that seems a little bit above his pay grade. Just my two cents, though. If there are any Midian fans out there who would like to vouch for him, by all means, hit me up at Raw Attitude Pod. And from there, we go elsewhere backstage, where the t-shirt-wearing police officers, for some reason, walk up to the random grouping of Tony Gurria, Sergeant Slaughter, and Howard Finkel. The officers ask where they can find the Road Dog and X-Pack, and the Fink then lives up to his nickname by telling them where their locker room is located. What a dick. And after a quick ad break, we get the Rocks getting Chevy with it, Chef Boyardee commercial, and you'll be happy to know that they've actually remixed it this time around. I'm sure that was very coveted in mixtape circles at the time. And then we head back into the arena for our next match, the road dog Jesse James, who has somehow not been apprehended by the police yet, versus Val Venus, who is still planning on wrestling, even though Draws, Prince Albert, and Gangrel beat the living shit out of him less than a half hour ago. And so, after a few minutes of action, I'm guessing you can probably figure out where things go, the three police officers emerge from backstage with an already handcuffed X-Pac, and they then proceed to enter the ring and arrest Road Dog as well. So presumably, the match has ended in a no contest due to an arrest for a misdemeanor offense. That has to be a first. And once Road Dog and X-Pac are hauled off to jail, we cut backstage where former DX members Billy Gunn and China are watching on a monitor. China says, if they want to play dirty, that's what they get, and Mr. Ass echoes those sentiments as well. Meanwhile, I'm just glad that the graffiti wasn't horrendously racist this time around, like when DX spray-painted the Nation of Domination's locker room and blamed it on the Hart Foundation. Since Peacock has notoriously been editing out questionable moments from past WWE shows, I'm betting that segment probably didn't make the final cut, but feel free to go look it up. So we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental title. Champion Jeff Jarrett, who is accompanied by Deborah, versus challenger Chaz, who is accompanied by his girlfriend Mariana. Let me repeat that. Somehow, Chaz has earned himself a shot at the second most important championship in the company. Chaz, the guy who was portraying Beaver Cleavage a few weeks ago. 
just so we're clear. But anyway, stop me if you've heard this before. We had yet another very short match here, as Chaz was in control in the early going, but as per usual, Deborah got up on the ring apron and unbuttoned her blouse in an attempt at distraction. However, this drew the ire of Mariana, who then went over to confront Deborah, but in the ensuing confusion, Jarrett was able to sneak up behind Chaz and hit him with a Russian leg sweep face buster, or the stroke as he'll later call it. And that was enough to secure the three count. Your winner and still WWF Intercontinental Champion, Jeff Jarrett. And after the match concludes, Jarrett asks for Deborah to hand him a guitar, and he appears ready to smack Chaz with it, but, well, before he can do that, a familiar face shows up on the scene. So yes, as you heard there, with Double J getting ready to clobber Chaz with his guitar, Chaz's former tag team partner, Thrasher, shows up on the scene, grabs the guitar from Jarrett, and chases him off. For those scoring at home, we haven't seen Thrasher on television since the January 10th episode of Sunday Night Heat, where the Headbangers lost to Oddity's members Kurgan and Golga. Thrasher suffered a knee injury around that time, so he's been sidelined ever since. And by the way, if ever you needed proof that they sweeten the audio on these pre-taped episodes of Raw, just listen to the reaction Thrasher gets there. It's particularly hilarious, too, because he's not even dressed in his headbanger attire. He's wearing a Raw is War t-shirt with black pants, a gold chain around his neck, and a black fanny pack. And it also looks like he's gained quite a bit of weight since we've last seen him, too, so I honestly doubt that most of the fans in the audience would have even recognized him, and yet... Big pop, despite the fact that the fans in the crowd are seemingly not reacting whatsoever. What are the odds? Also, Chaz is clearly going by his real name, but they still refer to his partner as Thrasher, even though the headbangers are no longer a thing. But then again, his real name is Glenn Ruth, which is a pretty plain name, so perhaps he has the right idea there. But anyway, welcome back, Thrasher. Enjoy the TV time while you can still get it. And after another commercial break, we head back into the arena for our next match, Brood member Edge versus corporate ministry member The Big Boss Man, who may or may not have raised the briefcase in the King of the Ring main event last weekend. And I know this is probably going to shock you, but we had yet another match that lasted barely two minutes. The finish came when the Boss Man tried to scoop slam Edge, but he escaped, bounced off the ropes, and nailed Boss Man with a spear. Although, when I say that he nailed him, that isn't totally accurate because it looked like Boss Man didn't know how to sell it, as he kind of fell backwards like a tree being tipped over, as opposed to throwing himself onto his back upon impact. But regardless, Edge made the cover, Jimmy Corderas made the count, and that was good enough to give the victory to Edge. Remember a few weeks ago when they teased a big Boss Man face turn after the corporate ministry beat him up and he came out to his original Hard Times theme music last week on Raw? Well, this week... He loses in no time flat to a guy who's been a jobber for the past nine months. My, how the not-so-mighty have fallen. But don't worry, because as soon as the bell rings, Boss Man immediately gets his heat back by smacking Edge in the face with his nightstick. He then proceeds to handcuff Edge to the top rope and continue beating him with the nightstick, and when Jimmy Corderas tries to intervene, Boss Man even punches him in the face too. 
Bossman then pulls out the keys to the handcuffs and starts taunting Edge until Christian finally arrives, knocks Bossman down, and grabs the keys. Unfortunately, Christian clearly isn't the smartest of the two brothers because he just turns his back on Bossman to go help Edge. So Bossman beats the shit out of Christian with the nightstick and also handcuffs him to one of the ring ropes. Yes, you heard that correctly. The boss man is single-handedly kicking the shit out of Edge and Christian. But of course, now the obvious question would be, where the hell was Gangrel? Remember that Edge and Christian pulled him away earlier tonight when he was putting the boots to Val Venus, and now, when ENC are the victims of police brutality, Gangrel is nowhere to be found. Hashtag brood lives matter. So how will this little controversy amidst the group play out? Well, spoiler alert, we'll find out on the next episode of Sunday Night Heat, so stay tuned for that. And from there, we go backstage where Michael Cole was with Triple H in China. So let's take a listen to what they have to say. Folks, well, so Michael Cole standing by with China and Triple H. Triple H in China so far, not a good night. First China, the car's been vandalized. Not, not just my car. You see, what they did is that they vandalized my personal property and my personal belongings. I was violated. Now, they are not going to get away with this because I intend to press full charges on both Road Dog and X-Pac. Now, this is exactly why I never wanted to be associated with the two loser criminals anyways. Triple H, tonight it's you and Rock inside a steel cage. You know, I want to know one thing. Where is beating the living hell out of the Rock again going to get me? And I'll tell you, it's going to get me nowhere. You know, this is what I want to know. Well, where's the communication breakdown here? Who's not getting this? You know... I want to be the World Wrestling Federation champ. And come hell or high water, I don't care what I have to go through, I am going to be exactly that, the WWF champion. So there you have it. China feels violated by Road Dogg and X-Pac vandalizing her vehicle. And hey, what do you know, Triple H is looking for career advancement. Folks, the signs were there back in 1999. We should have seen it coming. And by the way, I know it sounds like I cut off the end of the clip a bit early, but that is literally how it played out on the original broadcast. Since it was pre-taped, it was almost like they said, eh, we can cut out the end portion of this promo. And so they did, and they went to break. And retroactively, I bet Hunter went back and fired the guy whose decision that was. I have to say, though, I find this to be an interesting development, because for the past couple months, Triple H has basically been portrayed as kind of second-rate in the corporate ministry. He's been feuding with The Rock for a while, sure, but he doesn't really feel like a main event level guy at this point, and yet here he is, flat out saying he wants to be the guy in the WWF. Is it too soon right now? I'll let you be the judge of that, but it certainly feels a bit rushed, in my humble opinion. And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, your new King of the Ring, Billy Gunn, accompanied by the soon-to-be-pressing-charges China versus Meat, who is accompanied by Terry Runnels, Jacqueline, and, in what turns out to be her final Monday Night Raw appearance, Ryan Shamrock. And yes, folks, once again, we get a match that goes roughly two and a half minutes. In case you're keeping score at home, this is the sixth match of the night so far, which has gone less than three minutes. It's almost actually getting comical at this point, quite frankly. But long story short, the pissed-off China interferes on Mr. Ass's behalf, hitting Meat with a forearm behind the referee's back. And Billy eventually nails Meat with a jackhammer, followed by a Faymaster. And yes, that's good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, Billy Gunn. But then, as the match concludes, Jacqueline gets in Mr. Ass's face. And well, let's see how that plays out. That's a 
Stewart, Miss Jackie is giving uh, Mr. Ass a piece of her mind. Oh, oh, Jackie. Look, out. look how big Tiny is compared to Jackie. Watch your back. Look at this big Amazon. The ninth wonder of the world from behind. Now, how about that? From behind. And a leading team. Look out here. What's trying to the two DDTs? hairspray. I don't think so. I use that brand. Well, I got my glasses on. I'll tell you. That's spray paint. Good Lord. Now, boy, this spray painting idea is original, isn't it? What do you mean by that? I mean... Oh, come on. What are these two doing? Badass Billy Gunn in, in China have incapacitated Meat and Jackie. Well, I'll tell you what, they're doing exactly what Road Dog and X-Pac did to China's car earlier. Or so she says. Where, where did they get these, where did the spray paint come from? Is that the same color spray paint that was painted on her car? Wait a minute, what are you applying? What do you think, it's circumstantial evidence? Who do you think you are, Inspector Cluzo? Maybe they're not the perks after all, X-Pac and Road Dog. Shut up, Sherlock. Look at this DX sign. They own it. They paint it anywhere they want to. Well, and not an exactly original maneuver by, by a badass in China. They're really proud of themselves. They say they own the rights to DX, but I don't think so. So what you heard there was Jacqueline getting in Billy Gunn's face, which resulted in China laying her out with a DDT. And then, for good measure, Billy also hit Meat with a DDT, and they laid Jackie and Meat on the mat, face down next to each other. At that point, China took out a bag, and from there she pulled out some cans of black spray paint. Yes, exactly like the spray paint, which had been used to quote-unquote vandalize her car earlier tonight. It looks like Road Dog and X-Pac were innocent all along. Who would have thunk it? Billy Gunn then lifted up Terry's skirt and spray-painted her ass for some reason, but then he and China turned their attention to Meat and Jackie. With both of them still face down on the canvas, Billy and China proceeded to spray-paint the letters DX onto them, and really at this point I'm wondering why they're claiming the rights to DX, when clearly they should be claiming the rights to the NWO. I mean, black spray-paint on a fallen opponent's back. I'm just saying, if Eric Bischoff wanted to sue, he might have a case. And so, after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, the Big Show and the Big Shot Hardcore Holly versus what is supposed to be the team of Kane and X-Pac, but obviously X-Pac got hauled off to jail, so it looks like Kane will have to go it alone here tonight. Also, in case you're wondering, no, they have not changed the mat, because we can clearly see that it still has Billy and China's black spray paint on the canvas, so way to make an effort there, cleanup crew. And would you care to take a guess how long this match went? Well, if you guessed... Two and a half minutes, you would be correct. Our seventh match of the night that goes under three minutes. I think that may officially be a record. And the finish came when, of all people, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer emerged from backstage and walked down to the ring. According to Jim Ross, The Big Show has been speculating that Kane and The Undertaker have reunited, and so, when Taker and Bearer arrive, Big Show stares them down. But meanwhile, in the background, Kane picks up Hardcore Holly and nails him with a choke slam. Referee Earl Hebner makes the count, and that was good enough to give the victory to Kane. So yes, even though he was at a one-on-two disadvantage, Kane still managed to defeat the Big Show and Hardcore Holly all by himself. 
And at this point, I think Paul White has as many losses in five months in the WWF as he had in his entire WCW tenure. At least, well, it sure feels like that anyway. And once the match concludes, it appears that Big Show's suspicions about the Brothers of Destruction reuniting may indeed be correct because, well, take a listen. So as you heard there, once the three count was registered, Kane chop-blocked the Big Show's knee from behind, and he and The Undertaker then proceeded to beat the crap out of Show, culminating with an impressive-looking double suplex. At that point, Kane left the ring and headed backstage, and The Undertaker grabbed a steel chair. 
And because it's 1999 and brain damage wasn't invented yet, he clobbers Big Show in the head with an unprotected chair shot, and yes, that results in the Big Show's forehead becoming a bloody mess. With three weeks to go until fully loaded, The Undertaker has clearly sent a message to Stone Cold Steve Austin ahead of their first blood match. And I'm not going to lie, if The Undertaker spends every show from now until the pay-per-view bloodying up a different wrestler, I think that might be pretty entertaining. I don't know if that actually happens, but it probably should. And after a final commercial break, it is now time for our main event of the evening, and it is a steel cage match, The Rock versus corporate ministry member Triple H, who is accompanied by China. And just so you're aware of the rules here, in this particular match, referee Tim White is actually outside of the cage, so there will be no pinfalls or submissions. The only way to win will be by climbing out of the cage or walking out the door, which is still the dumbest rule in wrestling history. And in case you need a reminder, The Rock and Triple H have pretty much been feuding with each other for the past month and a half. Most recently, Triple H interfered on The Undertaker's behalf at King of the Ring and cost The Rock the title. And last week on Raw, Rock and Hunter had a singles match, but Billy Gunn attacked Rock after only about a minute and a half, so they had barely even gotten started. But tonight, they'll settle their differences inside a steel cage. So early on in the match, it appeared as though Triple H was attempting to crawl out the cage door, but when the door was open, China actually handed him a pair of handcuffs. Hunter then went back into the cage and punched Rock in the face with them, and from there he handcuffed one of the ends to the cage and left it hanging, which I assumed was going to come back into play later. But no, the handcuffs just dangle there for the rest of the match. Okay then. And by the way, talk about repetitive booking. This is literally the third time tonight that a pair of handcuffs has been used. Road Dogg and X-Pac got arrested and handcuffed by the t-shirt-wearing cops. The big boss man handcuffed Edge and Christian to the ring ropes, and now Triple H is bringing handcuffs into the cage. I'm starting to think that Vince McMahon must be friends with the local handcuff king of Fayetteville or something like that. Three for the price of one this week, Mr. McMahon, you can't beat that! So anyway, from there, Triple H tries to climb out of the cage, but Rock grabs his arm and throws him down to the mat. Rock then attempts to leave by crawling out the cage door, but before he can do that... China throws referee Tim White face-first into the side of the cage. And so, when Rock sticks his head out of the cage, China slams the door right into Rock's head, just like she did to Mankind at SummerSlam 97. But fortunately for Rock, though, on this night they're using the chain-link fence cage and not the blue bar cage, because that would hurt significantly more, just ask Mick Foley. And then, with Rock down on the canvas, China pulls Triple H out the cage door and down to the floor, and so your winner of the match is Triple H. Or is it? Because as you recall, China just knocked out Tim White, so he obviously didn't see Hunter leave the cage. However, that doesn't stop Hunter and China from raising their hands in victory as they walk up the ramp, but that provides The Rock with a chance to catch up to them. Rock initially gets the better of them, but the numbers game eventually catches up to him, and Triple H takes control, so China heads back down to the fallen Tim White to check on him. And after both men brawl outside for a bit, Rock finally grabs Triple H and tosses him back into the cage. Rock follows as well, and Tim White finally regains consciousness, so it appears as though this match must continue. And shortly thereafter, we head to our conclusion. Triple H climbs up the cage, but Rock catches up to him and follows Hunter, so now both men are seated on top of the cage facing each other, and from there, let's take a listen to what happens next. Uh oh, oh this is dangerous here. Oh, this is dangerous here. Oh my gosh, the right hands and a thumb to the eye. Somebody's going to get hurt here, King. Somebody's getting hurt. Come on, Hunter. Push him off there if you can. What are you doing, China? 
Charles, he got that steel chair. What's he? Charles handed off. Charles just handed Helmsley a weapon. No DQ. And, oh, gosh. Beautiful. Look at the rock skull print indented in the steel chair. The rock's eyes. It's all over now. It's all over. Hunter's going to win this thing twice. Hunter's going to come back down. I guarantee you, he'll go right for the door. Helmsley, what happened? He slipped. And, man, he landed a little gingerly. To oh, save the oh, no. Uh-oh. Helmsley tied up in the rope now. And China, because of the cage, can't get back in there. He's out. Hey, I don't know how much Helmsley's got left. He straddled that top rope. And the rocks begin to percolate a little bit up on the top. Come on, Hunter. All you got to do is crawl. With that one hand out there, pull yourself. Who's going to win this matchup? Hunter. Is it going to be the Rock? Is it going to be Triple H? It's anybody's horse race here. Pull. Hillsley low crawling go, to go, the door. Go, go, go. The go. Rock is moving. Open the door, you idiot. The Rock is moving. Get out, Triple H. He's moving. Whose feet are going to hit the ground first? Go, Triple H. He's moving. Hey, go. The Rock now. Get away, Triple H. Yes. The Rock, the rock wins. So with both Triple H and Rock on top of the cage, China then proceeded to grab a steel chair and hand it to Hunter, who nailed Rock with a chair shot to the skull. Rock then slumped face first down onto the top of the cage, so it seemed like Triple H was in perfect position to win the match, right? All he would need to do is climb down to the arena floor, correct? Well, from there, we got a rather stupid spot. Instead of climbing down to the floor, for some reason, Triple H decided to take the long way home, and he climbed back down inside of the cage. Unfortunately, though, when he did that, Hunter slipped on the top rope and accidentally crotched himself, briefly getting his legs stuck in the ring ropes as well. So, just to repeat that, with literally no one touching him, Triple H essentially slipped on a banana peel and traumatized his own balls when all he needed to do was climb down to the mat and walk out the cage door. For a guy who was talking about being the WWF champion earlier tonight, that spot wasn't exactly setting him up for success. Anyway, from there, Hunter slowly crawls toward the cage door while Rock starts to stir at the top of the cage, and so it's a race to the floor, and Rocky makes it there just before Hunter does, so your winner of the match is indeed The Rock. However, because post-match interference is a common occurrence tonight, as soon as Rock gets the win, Billy Gunn runs out from backstage and nails him with a Feymasser face-first onto the floor. Hunter and Billy then continue beating on Rock, and that is how we go off the air. 
Pretty hot way to end the show with two young superstars settling their grudge inside of a steel cage on free TV. And honestly, aside from the goofy spot where Triple H jumped sack first onto the top rope for no reason, this was a damn fine main event. Was it enough to save the whole show? I'll touch on that in a bit, but we're not done just yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWS stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So as a quick reminder, last week Raw defeated Nitro in the ratings 6.8 to 3.57, and that 6.8 was bolstered by the Austin vs. Undertaker WWF title match, with that quarter hour doing an insane 9.5 rating, making it the most watched wrestling match in the history of cable television. And yes, that record still stands today. So obviously the WWF wasn't going to duplicate a number like that on a pre-tape show, but of course, they still managed to win the night handily, putting up a 5.95 to Nitro's 3.27. And that low rating had to be considered a disappointment for WCW because they were putting on a show live from their own backyard at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. They had hoped for a sellout in a building which would seat about 44,000 fans, but instead they drew just over 25,000, with 19,000 of those being paid. Now, I will say, on the note of that attendance, 25,000 fans was viewed as an underachievement at the time because they hoped for 40,000 plus. However, I would retroactively view it as somewhat of a success because this very episode of Nitro would be the final non-WWE wrestling show in the United States to draw more than 20,000 fans until AEW's event called Grand Slam at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, New York, which aired on September 22nd of 2021 and featured the much-hyped Kenny Omega-Brian Danielson match. For 22 years, no other promotion in this country could draw 20,000 fans for a show, so in retrospect, I think this episode of Nitro was more of a success than previously thought. And they did stack the card with several big events, perhaps most notably a live concert from the band Megadeth, who was performing their song Crush'em. And after that performance, the lights went out, and we heard someone yell, I'm back! The lights then came back on, and we saw that it was none other than Goldberg, who had been away for the past two months filming Universal Soldier The Return. And in fact, it was purportedly Goldberg's idea for him to return this way, since he's a huge fan of Megadeth. But here's the catch. The Megadeth concert was the least watched segment of the night, dropping all the way down to a 2.1 quarter hour. And Goldberg literally appeared on screen for all of 20 seconds, so essentially a bunch of WCW fans turned off Nitro because they weren't fans of Megadeth, and they completely missed the return of the man who is arguably the company's biggest star. Yeesh. And by the way, this isn't just a WCW thing. If you flash back to October 26 of 1998, that was the last night that Nitro ever beat Raw in the ratings, and what was one of the segments on Raw that night? A Motley Crue concert. I realize that having a band do a song in the middle of a wrestling show seems like a good idea, but clearly if wrestling fans don't care for that particular group, they're gonna change the channel. Seems pretty obvious. But if you think WCW actually learned from this concert flopping, think again, because less than two months from now, we'll get another concert on Nitro, this time from the band KISS. 
Spoiler alert, their appearance will also end up doing the lowest rated quarter hour of the night, even though it closes the show. Ugh. But anyway, another big moment on this episode of Nitro was the return of Brett the Hitman Hart. Remember that we're only a month and a half removed from his brother Owen dying at Over the Edge, so Brett has understandably been away from wrestling since then. And on this night, he was given some time to address the fans and tell us where his head was at, so I'll play a little clip of that for you here. Eric Bischoff talked to me, and he asked me if I'd come back on July 5th and at least come and explain how I felt about things. And I thought maybe I'd be ready to talk about things when I got here. But the truth is, is that I'm really having a hard time deciding on what I want to do with, with my career and probably my life. lived for wrestling and my family has lived for wrestling and we've died for wrestling and I'm at a funny little crossroads where I look at wrestling pro wrestling and I go I don't know what else there's left for me to do anymore in wrestling Maybe it's time for me to move on and try to accomplish something else in another field or do something else. I think of Wayne Gretzky and I think of Elway and I, you know, I think of uh, all these guys that are retiring in 1999. And when I think of those people, they all, when they got to hang it up, they were all so happy. And I look at myself, and it sucks. Obviously some very candid words from Brett there. And I couldn't help but think of how even more tragedy gets piled onto this because, as you probably know, Brett does indeed decide to continue wrestling with WCW, but by the end of this very year, one kick to the skull essentially ends his career for good. But on a positive note, he seems to be doing very well in the present day in 2022, so let's focus on that instead. And by the way, I know wrestling fans can be shitty, but goddamn, while he's cutting that promo, you probably heard the one guy yell, You suck! as Brett was saying that his family died for the business, and someone else yells, hurry up at him later on. And also in the background at several points during this promo, you can see fans holding up signs that say, shut up and wrestle, as well as, kill Canada. I mean, goddamn, were we really that bad back in 1999? Because that's some pretty fucked up shit right there. Good lord. He was talking about his dead brother, people. And finally, as for how this episode of Nitro ended, well, it may be a familiar sight to you if you're a fan of the popular video series Botchamania. Why? Well, the show concludes with Kevin Nash alleging that he slept with Randy Savage's girlfriend, Gorgeous George, as Nash says, quote, Hey, macho, you want your old lady? She's in my dressing room. What's left of her? From there, we follow Savage to the backstage area where he angrily flips over a table and confronts Gorgeous George, asking her if what Nash said was true. 
Unfortunately, Tori Wilson is also standing nearby as Savage is going on his rampage, and she's clearly laughing at the Macho Man as he's going nuts. And so, yes, Savage slaps Tori right in the face as punishment for her breaking character. Yes, this is indeed the inspiration for the recurring Send for the Man segment on Botchamania. I have to say, though, this shit is pretty crazy, because not only does Savage go off-script and slap Tori, but he then notices that Gorgeous George is wearing a Kevin Nash t-shirt, so he tears that off of her, grabs her by the back of the neck, and throws her out of the room. He then goes back to Tori and says, quote, I'm gonna smack you too, before storming off. And I repeat, this is how Nitro went off the air. Their massive Georgia Dome show ends with backstage footage of Randy Savage slapping a woman, manhandling another woman, and then threatening to slap that same woman a second time. I mean, Jesus Christ. I usually just look the other way on a lot of this stuff, but yikes, this, this might have been a bit much. Let's just say that if Peacock were to edit out this segment, I wouldn't necessarily blame them on this one. Oof. But anyway... Now that this incredibly dark episode of Nitro has been sufficiently covered, let's go to the Raw synopsis. So I have to say, this episode of Monday Night Raw was pretty surprising. I mean, we got 10 matches in a two-hour show. That's certainly not the norm for Raw these days. Now, granted, most of them were under three minutes long, but I'll at least give them some credit for doing more than usual. We got off to a hot start with the Austin-Vince promo showdown, and then the Hardys winning the tag titles. Then the middle of the show really dragged, and we ended strong with a pretty good cage match between two guys who will go on to be legends in the industry. Not too shabby, I suppose. But all in all, I'll give this show a firm thumbs in the middle, trending a bit downward. There's some good stuff here, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend sitting down and watching the entire episode, because way too much of it is just filler. So yes, feel free to skip this one, but I have high hopes for the coming weeks as we inch closer to Fully Loaded and SummerSlam, followed by the debut of SmackDown on UPN. There's some quality content looming on the horizon, so be sure to stay tuned. And finally, before we finish up, here are a few notes from this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer. ECW finalized its deal with TNN, and their brand new show will premiere on that network on Friday, August 27th. Funny enough, literally the day after SmackDown will premiere on UPN as well. According to several reports, the reason why TNN shelled out millions of dollars for ECW is because they want to use it as a strong lead-in for... Roller Jam. Yes, that's right. TNN is banking on a roller derby show being hugely successful. And funny enough, ECW's influence is already being felt because on Roller Jam, they now have a heel owner character who has been ratcheting up the violence and forcing the women to wear skimpier outfits. So clearly this partnership between ECW and TNN is going to be great for all involved, right? Eh, we'll see. A bit of good news here, Davey Boy Smith, who just a few months ago almost died from a spinal infection he received while wrestling for WCW, has surprisingly almost recovered entirely. And not only that, he's actually training in the hopes that he'll be able to return to the WWF. I mean, frankly, I'm surprised he would want to return to the company that screwed one of his brothers-in-law and was also responsible for killing another brother-in-law a mere six weeks ago, but hey, you know, money. And speaking of money, Dennis Rodman recently signed a $1 million contract with WCW, and he was due to appear on tonight's massive Georgia Dome show, but he called before the show started and said he wasn't coming. Obviously, money well spent so far. And by the way, on the note of Rodman's contract, if you Google the phrase WCW contracts, you can actually find a Google Docs site which has screen grabs of most of the contracts which were signed around this time. 
So for the purposes of confirming the details of Rodman's contract, I pulled up a memo from June 9, 1999, which was sent from WCW lawyer Diana Myers to Eric Bischoff and Bill Bush, and sure enough, it does indeed confirm that they signed Dennis Rodman to a $1 million deal. In case you want to know a few more details from that same memo, Chuck Palumbo was making $39,000, David Flair was making $45,000, Billy Kidman received a raise from $125,000 to $300,000, and here is, by far, the best part. If you're listening at home right now, I want you to take a guess as to how much you think Swole was making at this point. In case you need a reminder, Swole was a friend of Master P's, and when P came to WCW, he requested for them to give Swole a job. So go ahead, just take a moment and you guess what you think Swole was being paid. Okay, now for the answer. According to this WCW memo, Swole was paid $350,000 with a $50,000 signing bonus. WCW paid Swole $400,000 to wrestle a total of six matches in two months before he retired from wrestling. I mean, wow. Although, in fairness, his real name is Randy Thornton, so maybe they were thinking they were signing the future Viper. Honest mistake. And finally this week, speaking of contracts, the big story is that the WWF just signed Chris Jericho to a three-year deal. And this had obviously been rumored for a while prior to this point, since Jericho had become very dissatisfied in WCW due to the higher-ups not seeing him as a main eventer. In fact, if you read Jericho's 2007 book, A Lion's Tale, he mentions that he knew he had to leave WCW when Eric Bischoff nixed his feud with Goldberg in the fall of 98, just as it was gaining steam. But now, he's about to get a fresh start in the WWF, and I think it goes without saying, he definitely made the right move. In fact, as I'm typing this, Chris Jericho is still active today in AEW, and he was actually that promotion's very first world champion, winning the belt at their all-out pay-per-view in August of 2019. It's been a hell of a ride for Chris Jericho, and his career certainly takes off once he comes to the WWF. I'll also note that The Observer singles out Jim Ross as being a big proponent of bringing Jericho into the company, and on that note, this gives me a chance to read from JR's autobiography, Under the Black Hat, which was released in March of 2020. We'll start with an excerpt where JR is sitting down with Vince McMahon to discuss bringing in Jericho. Quote, What do you see for him? Vince asked as he took in the highlight package on screen. He can be a babyface or a heel, I said. He's durable. I think he comes in for a top program. I could see the chairman was beginning to think, beginning to imagine Chris on his TV. On top, you think? Vince asked. Absolutely, I said. See if you can get it done. McMahon stood, ready to move on to the next thing. Actually, he said, correcting his own thought, meet him first, then bring him to the house. Bring him to the house was always a great sign that Vince really liked someone's upside. Whenever the boss wanted to impress a new talent, he'd have them brought to the McMahon mansion in Connecticut to sit by the pool. The fact that he wanted Jericho to get that treatment was a real fuck you to the rest of management who kept passing Chris over whenever his name came up. And now I'm going to fast forward a bit here in Jim Ross's book to the part where JR has a conversation with Chris Jericho. Quote, The good news is that Vince wants to meet you at his house, I said to Chris. The bad news is that I can't pay you up front what you're getting at WCW. I didn't get the impression that money was a big factor one way or the other. He just wanted to be part of the biggest company in his field. What can I expect, he asked. Well, your base salary will be roughly half what WCW is offering you now, I replied, but the way we work it, you could actually come out with a lot more every year based on bonuses, merchandise sales, appearances, and other revenue streams if you do well. The doing well part doesn't faze me at all, Chris said. I thought as much. Vince wants you to go visit him at the house, I said. His house? Chris repeated. Yep, I replied. 
I didn't much visit Vince's house myself on booking days. The creatives and I didn't gel all that well, but I wanted to make sure Chris was introduced in the right way to the boss, so I'd be joining him there. At the airport, Jericho met Vince's limo driver, who drove him to the McMahon mansion in Stamford. Shane answered the door and brought Chris to the table, where the boss was waiting with his creative team of Vince Russo, Ed Ferrara, and Bruce Pritchard. I could tell Vince was warming to Chris when he asked him about a finish of a match that he was booking for that week's Raw TV show. I smiled when I heard Chris chime in with his thoughts. I didn't give a shit if Jericho was 5'7", 10 feet tall, or 2 feet tall. He was a package delivered as far as I was concerned. A prospect who could do major things in WWE, no matter his size. Talent doesn't give a shit what height you are. I left Vince's place a happy man. I knew Chris had so much to give to WWE, and he certainly ended up living up to that potential. End quote. So thank you to Jim Ross for providing that insight. And now, well, I suppose we just have to wait and see when Chris Jericho will actually debut in the WWF. If you don't know, I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say that the countdown is on. And so on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review because that's helpful too. In fact, send me a shitload of five-star reviews because I want to know that people actually care that the podcast is back. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from the 2018 documentary Twist of Fate, The Best of the Hardy Boys, where Matt and Jeff talk about their tag team title victory against the Acolytes from this very episode of Monday Night Raw. So enjoy that, thank you again for bearing with me during this long layoff, and I will catch you next time. We were with Michael, we picked up a lot of big wins, and like people were starting to take us serious now. The Hardys had really evolved so far from when they entered the WWE, you know, seven or eight months ago. So we're in this match against the Acolytes, who are two of the, the baddest guys in the wrestling business as it is anyway, and it's a, a title match. It was just so overwhelming because it was just like, it was that moment that Jeff and I had always talked about since we were kids watching wrestling. You know, we were the tag team champions, and Matt and Jeff Hardy, you know, two kids from Cameron, North Carolina, who really, you know, like, you, you, what, what kind of odds would you give them to really make it, were the representation of the best tag team in the wrestling business. It was really like, you know, it was such a quick moment, but at the same time, all these thoughts were going through my head about, like, you know, all the sacrifices we'd made, and like, wow, this is. Uh, a real living, breathing example of dreams do come true. You know, if it would have ended right there, if that would have been the last thing we would have done at the WWE, you know, we would have been happy at that point. That was originally what we set out to do. But uh, being a driven person, uh, as I've said before, like, once you achieve one goal, it's time to sit on your own. I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, your peacock.